0: Coming up on the Money Beat podcast, yes, stocks are at a record high, but they are flashing a warning sign. If we're partying like it's 1999, does that mean that pretty soon we're going to be crashing like it's 2000? This is Money Beat from The Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Steven Grosser. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Money Beat Podcast. Paul and Steve here in the studio with our dear friend, ahead of the tapewriter, Stephen russo Mr. Russo-Lillo, how are you? Thanks for having me, guys. It's you, good to be back. You, you almost messed up my introduction there, <laughs> making me adjust your volume, the volume on your headphones. A
1: little uh, glitch. Technical
0: difficulties, A little technical but we're all, difficulties. Good. We're all, good.
2: all right. I'm, I'm actually glad to have the team back together. Uh, Right now. I mean, first of all, Friday was rough. I had to host, and I do not do as good a job as Paul does hosting. (laughs) It it was a little bit rough. That must be really awful, then, because I'm not (laughs) very good at this. I I don't even want to
0: think about what that was like. We had people dropping off the phone. We had electricity going out. Well, for the, the the real dedicated Money Beat fan I'll assume there's at least one of them out there. You might remember the three of us here in this studio for a long time when we first did the the podcast. My mom, maybe. Your mom. I think
2: my mother listened also. also. Fans. Fans. We had a fan base. Who was the guy who hated me? Remember, Oh, Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't even know if we should speak his name. (laughs) Uh,
0: Yeah, he really did hate you. Boy, it was very strange. Moving Um, on. (laughs) Moving on. We also have on the phone from across the pond our dear friend James McIntosh. James, how are you? Hey, guys. Welcome, welcome. And the reason we've got this particular grouping today, folks, is uh, Steve and James have both written some interesting pieces. James, is yours published yet? Like, I believe yeah, so. Yeah, it's online. Well, no, it's online. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, it won't really matter. People weren't taping this, so when by the time you hear this, it's out. But James and Steve both wrote pieces on the markets today, and, and it's sort of an interesting time for the markets. On Thursday, you had that, that triple record high, the Dow, the S&P, and the NASDAQ, first time since 1999. Everyone made a big deal about it. I made a big We all wrote, you know, all made our little Prince song references, and everything was great. And But, but it does raise the question of, what is this market right now? Uh, and I think, actually, we should start off with Russo Lillo. Uh, this was your Ahead of the Tape today. Sure. Talking yeah. about uh, basically talking about the valuations in the market and what they're telling
1: us. Yeah. So valuations are, are particularly interesting right now. Uh, it's been a pricey market for quite a while. The thing that's so interesting about this is if you look at the market historically. So not. So this is over the very very long term. You look at decades. Mm-hmm. We are now, and if you break up the market into deciles, so ten different spots of of, of highest most richly valued to lowest richly to to cheapest okay from 1 to 10 we are now in the top 10th of the highest most valued market out there over over time wow. so what does that say so yeah. when you look longer term over the next decade when the market hits these really really pricey levels over the next decade the S&P averages about a 4% annual gain for the next 10 years so a lot of people say, and I think this is correct, that valuation is not a short-term market indicator. You can have a rich, value, richly valued market for quite a long time, uh, but over the very long term, over the next 10 years, you typically tend to see lower returns than you do in a market that's – undervalued or, or, or pretty right. cheap. So so if you're kind
0: of playing the market right now, you're jumping in and out of names, you're looking for the bargain, you're a day trade or whatever, th- this kind of analysis doesn't really concern you. No, all because that
1: much. the S P is at twenty one ninety right now right. and it could go to twenty two ninety or twenty three ninety. And I mean it could keep going, but the idea being here is that this is a this is a historically has been a really good long term indicator. Right. So several years out, a decade out, returns are typically lower than when they are if the market is just fairly valuable or even undervalued and the
0: People that should be concerning, which is what you mentioned in the column, are are pension funds. Right. Uh, Really, any long term investor, anyone who's really looking to make something out of the market. Right. And the the thing
1: with the pension funds, the reason why we talked about this is that there's been a lot of talk already, and and our colleague Tim Martin had a great page one story about this a few weeks ago, looking at the investment targets that public pension funds Mm -hmm. need to meet. And how are they going to do it in an era where interest rates are so low, stock markets are so high, valuations are high? How are you going to get that seven and a half percent, seven seven and a half percent annual return in in that sort of environment? I mean, it, it it could happen theoretically. I mean, anything is possible, obviously, but it just seems like it's even more difficult now than it's arguably ever been.
0: Yeah. What I think is interesting is I think this is a relatively pessimistic
1: column from you, Russell. Well, it's it, 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 as you would say, Paul, it's a realistic column, right? Yeah, Not I, would say that. Realistic. I would say that. Yes. But it's, uh, it, 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 the thing to note here is that it really doesn't say anything about the short term. Because in, in a year or two years from now, the market could be up 10%, 20%. Who knows? Yeah. But I think if we look back on this period and if we say, okay, right now we're in summer 2016. In summer 2026, how would the markets have fared over the past 10 years? And that... I would argue, is going to be a lower return than we have grown accustomed to.
0: Well, and the, the, the really interesting thing about this is when you start to put it in context, and that's when we start to get into what, what James wrote. Uh, you look at the market right now, and I think this was another reason why that, that triple record drop on Thursday got everyone's attention. You, you look at the market now, you look at the market in 1999, the last time it happened, they're so
2: different, these two markets. Which James is, is completely what you focused on. The only thing that's the same is the can is a sort of persistent climb higher that we've seen over the yeah. last in the equities seven. market. Yeah, in equities yeah. market. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
3: I mean the. the incident between the two markets really is just that the markets are in very, very high levels and just keep going up in spite of all the apparent uh, sort of um, uh, weirdness of that. So back in 99, the weirdness was obvious that people were out there saying, yay, let's let's buy these mad stocks uh, because they changed their name. Um, there, was a, there was a study i probably my favorite academic study ever back in '99, <laughs> which showed that uh, companies that changed their name to a dot com after it had yeah, a 125% jump in their share price in 10 days um, and that was wow. the sort of complete you know, this market was completely bonkers. Now we're not getting that stuff now, but we are getting other things that are uh, equally mad going on. I mean, you've got negative yields out for decades in Mm -hmm. Switzerland. Um, You've got uh, negative yields in Germany. Um, So people are paying to lend their money to the government, and that's helping to drive up stock prices. So uh, it's happening for sort of opposite, well, I, I think exactly the opposite reason, that back then everyone was incredibly optimistic back in '99, so optimistic they were completely blind to the reality. This time around, they're incredibly pessimistic. Um, They're pessimistic about the economy, particularly outside the U.S., but uh, that pessimism is feeding through into lower rates, Mm-hmm. Uh, which in turn is helping to push up share prices. Um, I'm, right. I'm very hopeful that this time round people are overly pessimistic, um, but I I wouldn't swear to it.
0: Yeah. Let's let, let's take a break there. We're going to talk about this a lot more on the, in the next segment. We have to take a break because we have an important message for you. We will come back on the other side of it.
3: Hi, this is Paul Jigo, host of the Potomac Watch podcast. Join me and my colleagues every week as we dissect all of the latest happenings in Washington and on the campaign trail. Check us out at wsj.com podcasts and become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and the Google Play Music app.
1: WSJ Podcasts.
0: Listen ambitiously. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now, from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Steven Grosser. Welcome back to the Money Beat Podcast. Paul and Steven here in the studio with our dear friend, Steve Russolillo, and from across the pond, James McIntosh. And folks... As always, I just want to remind you, for more great podcasts, you can check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts. We have a lot for you to choose from. We've got Your Money Matters, got the Free for All with Jason Gay, Speakeasy, Heard on the Street, What's News, WSJ Opinion, the Tech News Briefing. And of course, the Money Bee podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts, and you can become a subscriber. That's right. You will not have to go and find us. We will come to you if you subscribe. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. We are also on your Google Play Music app on your Android devices. And uh, James McIntosh, the thing that I thought was really interesting. Uh, your comparison of, and we're, we're talking here about the market valuations, th- this particular moment in the stock market. What does it mean comparing it to 1999, the last time you sort of had the, the three major indexes setting records on the same day? And the thing I thought, James, was really interesting was your, your comparison of central banks to pets.com. You, you gotta, you got to unpack that one a little for us.
3: Okay, so so pet.com um, uh, the older listeners uh, out there will remember um, IPO'd in 2000 um, was, uh, I mean in terms of the US IPOs was probably the uh, sort of most insane of right. uh, what was a, a very wild bunch of um, uh, stocks coming to market um, famous for its sock puppets which were a far better investment than its shares <laughs> um, and uh, in fact you can can still buy the sock puppets now, and they they still look quite cute. Yeah,
4: and you <laughs> but, can make um, one too. <laughs> uh,
3: yeah, but they uh, their their share price collapsed from the day of IPO, pretty much. Um, within 10 months, they were, or 11 months, they were bust um, from the IPO. And uh, that that really was the uh, poster child for the dot-com bubble. Um, this time around, if things go wrong, and I, I, I stress this is an if, I'm, I'm very hopeful that bond yields are going to go up again because the economy does better. But if that happens, I think people are going to be looking back in 10 years' time, as you say, and saying, my God, what on earth induced anyone to buy those Swiss government 30-, 40-, 50-year bonds on negative yields? What were they thinking? Um, how, how could they possibly have justified that? Um, we've seen a bit of a taster of that already with some very big losses at the long end of bonds in Japan. But the impact of that would be a very heavy feed-through into the stock market, uh, because at the moment the stock market being held up just by these, these very low bond yields. Um, the main underpinning of what's going on so if we get that you're going to get the the most almighty rotation in the stock market at the very least. So even if the market level holds up, a lot of this stuff that people have been buying uh, for safety, for the dividend yield, um, the utilities, the consumer staple stocks are going to get absolutely killed. And people are going to be looking back and saying, "Well, look, these these the, the central banks here were the the main drivers of what's been going on in valuations." Um, and this is uh, this is going to be. Um, uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if other people will make yeah. the comparison about Pets. dot com, but it's certainly going to be the group that gets to be uh, the main uh, blame, take take the blame, as it were, when people right. are looking, uh, looking uh, back the s- spe- future and trying to explain
0: it. Speaking of Pets. dot com, such a cat in the background there.
3: Yeah, that's my cat in the background. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <you> know, the <laughs> thing thing I, d- I d- about pets and right. some puzzles, the,
0: I the thing that's really interesting in comparing now to the dot com days is, and I, you make this point explicitly in your column, James is. Yes, the markets are rising for very different reasons between now and then, right? I mean, wild optimism, wild pessimism. But the the thing that actually is similar beyond just the fact that the stock price is going up is that people have convinced themselves that the current situation is going to remain the current situation for a long time, which is why, Rusulo, people aren't really worried about the 10-year returns, w- which is why people look at negative yields, which are almost literally just – it's it's unnatural, and, and they just kind of roll with it.
3: Yeah. I, I, I mean, you know, it's worth <coughs> – I, I, I agree with Stephen completely about the, uh, about the 10-year returns, but go back to 99, and the, the 10-year annualized return at that point was almost 20%. So people had been making almost 20% hmm. a year for 10 years. So at that point, everyone thought things were going to carry on the same as that, uh, at the moment, the, the 10-year annualized return stands at just under 8%, which is much more in line with the historical uh, right. average. So people are thinking, hey, you know, maybe if things carry on at 8%, the, the pension funds won't be in such trouble. I mean, some of them have even more aggressive targets than that. But if you've got 8% returns on stocks, pension funds would be very, very happy with that. Now, I think that's wildly over-optimistic, and it, it captures the point that everyone always forgets that if share prices have gone up, that means that your future return has gone down. You're going to get the, the less there to make in future because you've already made it. So if you're buying stocks at these prices, you've got to expect that returns are going to be lower than if you would bought them a few years ago when they were much cheaper. So it doesn't really, it doesn't seem to me that people have quite internalized things. Um, but on the other hand, if your reason for buying stocks is not that you expect to make great returns in future, but that your alternative is to make even worse returns by buying bonds, then maybe it makes sense. So, okay, you're only going to get 3%. But, hey, if your alternative is cash at zero or less, uh, or a bond in the U.S. at one and a half, maybe mm-hmm. making three, three and a half, maybe four if you're lucky is okay.
1: But, James, that's a great point. So, so my, my question, though, is you, you were talking about the negative yield experiment that's going on around the world, and if it ends really badly... Why then would some of these, you know, the utilities or the big dividend payers, why would they go down? Wouldn't people just sort of move into them thinking that, again, this whole notion of there is no alternative, so I might as well go into the stocks that are giving me yield? So how does the negative yield, how does the negative rate experiment, how would that hurt?
3: Oh, oh no, the the problem would be if rates go up again. So if yields oh, yield start to rise again, then there's no need to be taking the extra risk. So if you can earn... on a bond, you wouldn't need to buy a a utility stock for the dividend, because the bond is offering a better return than the utility stock. So why take that extra risk? So the reason now people buy utilities, even though they've got quite a bit more risk than a bond, is because you're getting a, a pickup in yield. And people need that pickup in yield. And they're um,
1: assuming that rates will stay even lower for even right. longer. Exactly,
3: yeah. I think people, people are very much, and you only have to look at the long end of you know, how much people have been willing to put into long bonds, long, you know, which mature in a very, very long time in, in decades. Um, they're, at those levels, they're willing to accept incredibly low returns. Right. I mean, some of the returns are just com- you know, completely off the wall. Um, the U.K. 40-year, the Japanese sorry, the U.K. 50-year, the Japanese 40-year, uh, Swiss 50-year, these sorts of things are offering really negligible returns, and people have been willing to take that, even though they're so low, because they expect central banks to be keeping rates on the floor pretty much forever. Right. There's, there's very little optimism out there about the, the global economy.
0: Yeah, and the, the, the craziest thing about all of this is, as irrational as you can say that situation is, expecting bond rates to stay this low forever. you you can make rationally a case for it when you look at what the central banks are doing. When you look at the direction they're going in, you, It's just – I can't blame traders for buying stocks at these prices knowing that the fundamentals are not
2: really there. Well, I think this gets to actually the point that you you have the quote from David Rosenberg who was famously bearish during the dot-com. And he was – you know he doesn't think there's a, this irrational exuberance in the fixed-income right. market. He thinks it's a controlled market. Like this exactly. is controlled completely it by the contr- central exactly. you know, bank and central bank policies. Right.
3: So, but you've got to. But remember, there are other people who disagree with him. I would highlight. Yeah, that. Yeah. Um, yeah, But yeah, but absolutely, that is that is a quite a strong view. I mean, there's lots of talk about a bond bubble, um, and there are people out there who say that it's a contradiction in terms. You can't have a bond bubble. Now, personally, I think you probably can have a bond bubble, but it, it's not quite like an equity bubble um, because it's driven by this sort of opposite, this opposite thing of pessimism, not optimism. Um, but the, the principle's still there that people don't really want to be owners of this and they know they're right. taking too much risk by buying it and they will therefore get out again at the slightest opportunity and you know, they, they start to see a move in the opposite direction, they start to see yields rise, you could get a very rapid retreat from where things are and in fact in the last couple of weeks we've seen exactly that in Japan at the long end um, with some very painful losses, 15% losses or so over about three or four weeks for people who bought the long-dated Japanese bomb um, precisely because it was insanely overvalued. It was a classic example of a bubble. It had, it had risen by, in price this is, um, it had risen by almost half yeah. this year. This is a you know, These, right, aren't, these right. aren't things that are supposed to do this.
2: Exactly. I mean, my question is, can you have both a control market and a bubble, too? I mean, you know, well, I mean in if you're...
3: Especially how much you control it. No. Right. Do the central banks really control it? I mean, you know, there are still
2: market forces out there, right? Yeah, right. Uh, no, I mean, I, I mean, that's the thing. Is I, I think that you know, the central banks can't control it completely. Um, I mean, you can see. I mean, uh, their efforts to their their
0: effort has been to pump up this this so called wealth effect, right? I mean, that's what they've been trying to do. They've been trying to get people to buy. They've been trying to get people to feel wealthier so that they'll buy more. The whole thing has been. Uh, and I know this is a pejorative, but, I mean, it's it, a confidence game. They're trying to boost confidence to get people to buy things. Well, they're, they're, they're wanting people to make investments, whether it's people or businesses. Right. And what they're not doing is getting the confidence, but they are getting the game part of it. People are buying. Right. They just don't believe in any of it. And they think that's you know they'll be able to get out first. I mean, it's a classic market thing, right? You, you know it's irrational, but you think, well, I'll get out first. So I'll buy in now,
2: and I'll just watch the markets, and I'll make my money back in but everybody thinks that. I think I think it's more interesting actually than when you, instead of people or traders or investors, it's looking at what businesses are doing, and how they're investing. There, you know. Yeah. And what the are they doing? They're, they're not. Don't <laughs> no, right. Exactly. Well, where are they putting? And, it? and this is the difference between you know one of the big differences that uh, James makes in his in, in his piece is in '99 you were doing M and A. You're and in, in investors were invo- you know rewarding you for investing and buying other companies and trying to grow. Today, investors are, you know, rewarding you for paying more dividends, doing buybacks. You know, right. And that, and that's the big difference. And that's, and, that's, the, right. and that's where the confidence is lacking. And I think the, But I think, you know, it's on a business level, it's much more interesting. Yeah.
3: Of course, that's all part of the same thing. Right. The low interest rates are precisely designed to make you consume more and yeah. save less. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's feeding through into corporate action as well because shareholders are telling them that the shareholders want to consume more and save less, and that means investing less at the company level. Right. So, companies are being pressured to pay out their dividends to do buybacks. Um, Now, I mean, this fluctuates a bit. There's been a bit less of that this year, uh, just recently, but this is a... This is very much the the way that the the direction of travel for the last five years as rates have come down.
1: So gloom and doom, man! Aren't we supposed to be celebrating no, record highs no, here, no. MoneyBeat? Steve, as you pointed out earlier, we're realistic. Realistic. This That's is real. Right.
0: This this, this <laughs> it. This is the situation. This and this is what we've been trying to do. Is right. Just kind of paint the situation for and folks out there. And it's also quite different
1: but from lady, 1999.
3: This is the turning point, right? Well, I, you, know, you know, I know, I know. It's, it's not really right to be injecting a note of uh, positivity into any of this discussion. But you know, if you wanna be if you wanna be positive you can say, Well look Governments are starting to go fiscal. We're starting to see some fiscal action out there. So uh, Japan has delayed its tax hikes. It's done a yet another supplementary budget. Britain said that austerity is off the table. Uh, the European Commission has said, well, forget those rules. Uh, Spain, and, Spain and Portugal can carry on spending. Um, Italy's threatened to ignore the European rules altogether if it doesn't get a waiver. Um, and, of course, in the U.S., Uh, I mean, you know, it looks like uh, uh, Hillary Clinton's ahead in the election, but Mm -hmm. if she wins, the Democrats are the austerity candidates in this election. So, you know, Democrats and uh, and budget restraint don't go together so well. And it looks like there's going to be more government spending out there, and that that should mean higher bond yields. It's the one thing that's almost certain to get bond yields up and interest rates up. And so all of that should be vaguely positive for the economy now that's going to be bad for all these safe stocks people have been buying right. but maybe it'll be good for the companies out there that actually want to invest so we might find that we get a bit of a rotation in the market that we get some uh, real economy action and that frankly in my view would be a good thing
2: all right let's let's leave it there good place Good place to leave it. I'm surprised you're letting him leave on an optimistic note.
0: I am. I am. <laughs> listen, I, personally, I am an optimistic person,
2: so I'm happy to leave on an optimistic note. James, James, I'm not sure you're quite as aware that uh, Paul's uh, nickname is Papa Bear in the yeah, newsroom. Yeah.
3: You should you should buy him a Pets.com stock puppy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> on eBay at the moment.
2: I think that was the last time you actually had money in the market.
3: <laughs> you
0: know, That was probably the last time I was actually optimistic about the market, and I was I was a young knave. Oh I
3: was a You're fool. I was be a fool. They've
0: had right. their value a lot better than the stocks. Right. All right. Uh, let's before this turns into a complete session bashing me. Let's leave it here, everyone. I want to thank you for listening, Steve Grosser, Steve Russo, James McIntosh, Paul Vigna. We will catch up with you again soon.